The Old Testament lesson today is from Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 10. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but will but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse, who, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. The word of the Lord. And we will read the psalm responsively. The psalm is Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to shield or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. The New Testament reading is from Acts 13, 13-43. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. 
The God of his people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt, and, and with uplifted arm he led them out of it, and for about forty years he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that, it was, all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that God promised to the fathers. This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says, and also in another psalm, You will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that though this man forgives of, forget, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogues broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The word of the Lord. Please stand for the reading of the gospel. This is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. As they were talking about these things, 
Nicodemus, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? He gave them a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scripture and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. This is the Gospel of our Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Please be seated. Well, um, let me just introduce myself again if we haven't had a chance to meet. My name is Sam, and I'm filling in for Jay Trailer, who's uh, the, the vicar here at this church. Is that the name for Jay? Yeah, Vicar. That's good. Um, it's, it is great to be with you all. Um, full disclosure, I had a, a minor oral surgery this week, so every word is painful. So, so however painful it is to listen to me, it is more painful <laughs> for me. Uh, guest preaching is hard because people don't know you. And so quite reasonably, they might have a difficult time trusting you. I shrewdly recognized this reality early on and decided that the best course, uh, rather than start a sermon from scratch, would simply be to steal one and to admit to you that I've done so right from the start. So this morning, I'm preaching to you a stolen sermon, and I'm openly admitting it right up front. Uh, full disclosure, I even copied and pasted it word for word from the internet into my notes in its entirety. But look on the bright side, it was uh, a sermon first preached by a very capable preacher, and not only that, it's really fitting for this occasion, because when it was first preached, it was preached by that preacher uh, on a day when he was a guest preacher with a, with a different congregation. So I'm preaching a stolen sermon, but it's a good sermon by a very good preacher preached on an occasion when he himself was a guest preacher. So it's a stolen sermon, but it's the right stolen sermon. Now, just a few of you are looking at me with very concerned looks on your faces. So maybe now is the time to add that my stolen sermon has in fact already been read to you when Jeremy read for us St. Paul's first sermon from Acts chapter 13. That really is my stolen sermon. And uh, if you would like to find it, it will help you immensely if you can follow along. If you've got a Bible with you, or if you can access one on your phones, uh, do turn to Acts 13. I think it will help immensely to be able to work through the passage together. 
And uh, while you're getting there, um, let me say a prayer as we get underway. Oh Lord, the unfolding of your word gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. So please now, open your word to our hearts and open our hearts to your word. For Christ's sake, amen. So I said that I'm preaching a stolen sermon. That was really just a cheeky way of saying what I actually intend to do, which is to relate to you the life-transforming message of the gospel that was uh, captured in a very great gospel message by a very great gospel minister here in Acts 13. Our reading from Acts, the one that Jeremy read to us, gives us Paul's first sermon, uh, number one of three, in the book of Acts, and it's a massively significant place. It's a strategic turning point in Luke's account of the early church. It parallels Peter's first sermon in Acts chapter 2, that day day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit falls on the people and 3,000 come to faith in Jesus. And gospel writer Luke, who's the author of Acts, intends for us to see the Apostle Paul doing something here in a similar way. The gospel is on the move, just like it was on the move in Acts chapter 2. Now, just as Luke's gospel related the ministry of Jesus Christ on earth, so the book of Acts, which is the gospel of Luke, volume 2, relates the ministry of Jesus in heaven by his Spirit through his church. In Acts 2, when when Peter preaches to all those people, the ascended Lord Jesus was at work by his spirit through his word on Peter's lips. He's using Peter's message to open blind eyes to see who Jesus really is. And the same thing is happening here in Acts chapter 13. The ascended Lord Jesus is at it again. He's at work by his spirit using his word, not on Peter's lips, but on Paul's lips to open blind eyes to see who he really is. Gospel writer Luke prepared us to read the book of Acts this way all the way back in our gospel reading. So think of Jesus and those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. You see, the resurrected Jesus hasn't come back from the grave in order to now take a load off and do nothing. The road to Emmaus that, that, and that meeting with those disciples... That's a glimpse of what the risen Lord Jesus is going to be doing throughout the entirety of the book of Acts. That that reading came right from the end of Luke's gospel, and it's an overture. It's like a sneak peek of what Jesus is going to be doing now from heaven in the book of Acts. Acts is the story of the risen and ascended Jesus opening blind eyes by the powerful work of his Holy Spirit through the faithful gospel ministry of his servants. In Acts chapter 13, Paul's first sermon is another, indeed a key instance of the risen Jesus working by his spirit to open blind eyes. So let me set the scene for us. Acts chapter 13. It's a synagogue gathering. It's not entirely unlike this. God's people coming together to hear his word read and to hear it expounded. Now, unlike Acts chapter 20, where Paul, that's uh, Paul's third sermon, Paul's preaching to Christians in Miletus. It's different from that. It's different from Acts chapter 17, Paul's second sermon when he's preaching to the pagan philosophers at the Areopagus. Here, chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas have woken up. It's the Sabbath day. And as it were, they've gone to church. They go to synagogue. And after they've sat down, 
the leaders of the synagogue do to Paul pretty much exactly what Jay has done to me. They say, verse 15, if you have a word of encouragement for the people, say it. They're saying we've, we, we, they had just had scripture read. Now, please, if you have a word of encouragement, of exhortation for the people, say it. And then, man, Paul gets going. And when he gets going, he's really going. Over the space of only seven verses, verses 17 to 25, Paul sums up the entire storyline of God's people, Israel. And that storyline, I think we could briefly sum up this way. So if you're taking notes, here's my first header. Here's the first header, the storyline of Israel. New creation through kingdom. New creation through kingdom. Now, if that's the storyline, new creation through kingdom, then you may think that Paul has left quite a lot out here because he starts off with what major event in the history of God's people. Let's see if I can find it first. Verse 17. He goes straight to the Exodus, straight to Egypt. He skips over a lot, doesn't he? He skips over Adam, over Noah, over Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Why do you think he jumps right to the Exodus, that great rescue mission when God brought his people Israel out of Egypt? Why start there? Well, I want to suggest that that as we modern people listen to this first century Jews sermon to a gathering of first century Jews, we're like people who are hearing only one side of a telephone conversation. We, We need more info to understand what Paul is up to. See, Paul doesn't choose the Exodus as his starting point on accident. He starts with it deliberately. But the story that he's telling goes a lot farther back. Let me explain. I said Paul is a first century Jew preaching to first century Jews, right? Well, these are people who know the Old Testament scriptures inside and out. They share with Paul a, a, a particular worldview. For Paul the, 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 and his hearers, the story of the world is the story of the one true God. This God created the world, and in this world, he put people to bear his image and to establish his reign. But these image bearers rebelled. I don't know if you guys are into, um, into kind of folk music, but there's a wonderful band called the Arcadian Wild. And your homework this week is to go and listen to a little album, four songs, called Principium. And there's a great line. This is about the garden. It's about the fall and about God's great intention to redeem, his plan to redeem. There's a great line in one of the songs where they say, I believed a viper and I grew a pair of fangs. That's what happens in the garden. The image bearers rebel And they become like, they start to resemble what they truly revered. And as a result, God's good creation, this beautiful world that he'd made, it began to unravel. Sin resulted in decreation. Now, some of this may be familiar to you already. So let me just add an element. In the beginning, God's creation was good, but it wasn't perfect. Had God's image bearers obeyed? Had they loved God and established his just and loving rule in creation, 
then things would have gotten better. Greater blessings would have followed. Adam and Eve were looking into a future of ever-escalating blessings, a future in which every act of obedience would be crowned with fruitfulness and joy. And it was that future which they dashed beyond all hope when they rebelled against their good and loving maker. And instead of fruitfulness, there came barrenness. And instead of joy, grief. Instead of blessing, curse. But Paul and his hearers, they know that the story goes on. The the loving creator does not leave his image bearers to die. They still look like him. So God refuses to allow his creation to unravel, and he insists with his gracious stubbornness that humanity's future of blessing is not going to be thrown off course. So he raises up a nomad, Abraham. And from Abraham, a nation, Israel. And through Israel, God's not only reconciling individuals to himself, although he's doing that, he's not even just reconciling nations to himself, although he's doing that. No, through Israel, God is making a new creation. He is righting the unraveling wrong of his first image bearers. That's what we need to know. God is working a new creation through Israel. Now, that enables us to see why Paul starts with the Exodus, the Red Sea Road. God parting the Red Sea, leading Israel out. And here's why I need to give you this long run-up, this explanation of why Paul starts with the Exodus. Because the parting of the Red Sea is the Old Testament's ringing echo of creation. In ancient Near Eastern culture, the the original historical context in which uh, the first few books of the Bible were written, Creation is not the opposite of nothing. Creation is the opposite of chaos. Creation was order triumphing over disorder. That's why in Genesis uh, chapter 1, the Spirit of God hovers over the waters. The waters were, if you're an ancient Near Eastern person, the source of all chaos. It's where Leviathan lives. It's scary. The ocean isn't where you go to vacation, right? (laughs) The ocean is where, like, you flee from it. So when God parts the Red Sea, Moses expects us to understand, he's showing us that he's doing a work of new creation. Sin has tried to unravel creation. God stubbornly refuses to let it unravel. He's showing us he's so stubborn. He's so gracious. He's not going to allow sin to derail his original intention to bless us. And that's the story. That's the other side of the phone call that we don't hear here in Acts chapter 13. It's what we need to keep in mind to understand what Paul then goes on to say in verses 21 to 25. Yes, Israel's story is a story of new creation, but not only that, it's the story of new creation through kingship. And it's enormously important that God's refusal to give up on his creation is demonstrated, not just in any old way, but through the establishment of a king. Not Saul, not the foolish strong man, but David, the man after God's own heart, verse 22. And ultimately, of course, not even David. David was only a seat warmer for the one who would come after him. 
This coming king would be the offspring promised in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The one who would crush the head of the serpent and in the process be fatally wounded. He would be the, uh, again, recognize this term, the offspring of Abraham, the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to bless all the nations. He would be the offspring of David, the true heir of David's kingly line, who would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. This coming king, the one promised so many times over to Eve, to Abraham, to David, to Isaiah, this coming king would be God's chosen way to establish his new creation. His stubborn decision to love sinners required a king. So, when Paul says, verse 23, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Paul now is making a very particular claim about who Jesus is and what he came to do. He is the king through whom God is establishing a new creation. He is the one who crushes the serpent under his heel. He is the one who blesses the nations. He is the only king who is truly and unfailingly a man after God's own heart. There's no Bathsheba in the story of Jesus. And he's the lamb who was led to the slaughter, as Isaiah says, that many might be accounted righteous. That's a prophecy about Israel's coming king. I wonder if you have ever considered what it says about people, about human potential, what's at our hearts, that it requires a king to achieve God's new creation. That's not a very pervasive view of human possibility in our culture, is it? It's not a very popular way to understand how the good life is attained. We live in a culture increasingly comfortable with utopianism. If you want to solve all the world's problems, what do you need? Two things. Number one, education. Education is the unerring road to progress. Get educated. That's half the battle won. Well, in fact, that's, that's not true, is it? Some of, some of the greatest villains of history have also been some of the cleverest people around. One of England's old prime ministers, Arthur Wellesley, put it this way, educate men without religion and you make of them but clever devils. Educate a sinner, we could paraphrase him, and all you get are clever sinners. Education won't cut it. It doesn't, it doesn't get down to the nub of the problem. Well, that's one cul-de-sac that our culture is trying to follow out in order to reach justice, in order to reach true life, the good life. Here's the second one, law. Our society has this enormous and naive confidence in law that it's going to be the law that's going to sort out all of our problems. Well, the law doesn't cut it either. I remember when I was... A young boy, maybe six, seven years old, I was working on something with my grandfather in his shop, and we needed something small, like some sandpaper. We hop in the car, we go down to Lowe's, get the sandpaper, pay for it, leave. Well, we didn't realize this until we got home, but the cashier had handed my grandfather back an absurd, absurdly wrong amount of change, like way too much, way more than he should have done. 
And we were back home before we noticed. And, and what, what did he do? Well, he had me buckle right back up. And we drove right back the 15 minutes to Lowe's in order to give the change back. Now, whatever motivated my grandfather to do that, it can't have been that much money. Couldn't have seemed like that much of a big deal, and he probably forgot about it by dinner time. But whatever motivated him to do that, it, it wasn't education, and it, and it wasn't the law. No one was telling him to do it. There was no penalty being threatened. What motivated him was the voice of his king telling him to do the right thing when nobody was looking. And my grandfather just obeyed. And in that little moment, that moment he'd probably forgotten about by dinner time, my grandfather did what our first image bearers failed to do. He listened to the voice of his king. And even that little act of obedience, in that, all the enormous consequences of, of Adam and Eve's sin, all the unraveling that have resulted in sin and death and suffering and sorrow and futility, they were overshadowed. It's a remarkable thing. They were overshadowed. Because my grandfather's tiny act of obedience became, amazingly, this glorious inbreaking of God's new creational kingdom. Now, I want to be careful in what you take away from that illustration, because what I'm not saying is that it's our obedience which makes the kingdom come. We're not the agents in this story. And again, this is a very kind of dangerous way, I think, that the, that the church can capitulate to a very popular cultural uh, narrative, that we're the ones who bring the change. Well, no, look at, look at Paul's uh, look at the first half of Paul's sermon and look who it is in almost every sentence who's doing the, the heavy lifting. It's God. He's the subject of every verse. Verse 17, it's God who performs the exodus. Verse 18, God who lovingly carried the Israelites in the wilderness. By the way, that's a better translation than put up with, like the ESV has the context here. Is not that God bears with these stupid people. It's that he, in a caring fatherly way bears them up through the wilderness if you've you may very well have a footnote in your bible pointing that out to you it's god verse 19 who takes down the canaanites god verse 20 who gives the prophet samuel god verse 21 who gives saul israel's first king and god verse 22 who raised up david from whom finally verse 23 god brought israel a savior Jesus, God, 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 God. He's the one doing the work. He's the focus. So we've got to listen to our king. We've got to obey him. We've got to walk in his ways. But we've always got to remember that we're not the one bringing the kingdom. He is the one doing the work. It's not our government. It's not our universities who are finally going to realize justice in our world. It's God and not our technological or, or medical brilliance who are finally going to put sorrow and death to flight. And this point is crucial because new creation must come through kingship. And this is not a... God's kingdom is not a democracy. We're not the ones who establish the king. God is. And wonderfully, Paul goes on to say that this is exactly what God has done. So if you're taking notes, a second heading, our first heading, new creation through kingdom. Here's the second heading, kingdom 
through resurrection. Kingdom through resurrection. One of my very favorite verses in Scripture is really a summary of this passage. It comes from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. It's one of these rare places where Paul just summarizes his gospel message. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. He tells Timothy, his son in the faith, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel. Well, having called to mind the story of Israel and pointed to its culmination in King Jesus, Paul now gets to the heart of the message about Jesus. Through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, God has, verse 32, fulfilled his promise to the fathers. He's given Israel the only king, uh, verse 34, who can guarantee sure blessings, blessings that never decay, that never fail, that are never going to shrivel up and die. Why are these blessings so sure, these holy and sure blessings of David? The, the, the word translated sure here is the same word for, for faithful. What, what makes these blessings reliable, faithful? Well, it, it's because, as Paul says in verses 35 and 37, The king who guarantees these blessings has risen from the dead never to see corruption, never to see decay. He's always going to be there to ensure these promises. Friends, the blessings that the risen King Jesus has to give, they don't have a shelf life. They're incorruptible. They can't decay. They'll never shrivel up. They're always alive. They're always reliable. They're always there for the taking. Just as easy to reach out and grab hold of. Just as easy to reach out and grab hold of as a bit of fruit on a tree. So do you want to lay hold of these imperishable blessings this morning? Maybe you've done that before. Maybe you've grown up. Maybe like we prayed for our kids There's never been a day in your life when you haven't wanted those blessings. But maybe this is a new thing. Or maybe it's been a very long time since you've walked with the Lord Jesus. Paul desperately wanted for his brothers and sisters to reach out and lay hold of these blessings. In in Romans 9, he talks about how he would wish hell on himself for the sake of his Israelite brothers and sisters. He says, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. His his audience here. Paul thinks that Christ is the only thing worth having. Everything else is rubbish. And he's willing to give up Christ if it means that his brother and sister Jews can have him. Paul desperately desires that his hearers are going to lay hold of the imperishable blessings of King Jesus. And while I am not a great enough saint to share Paul's wish yet, it is my deep longing that you will take hold of these blessings too. What are these imperishable blessings? I think there are two of them. And we learn about the first one in verse 38. In fact, we learn about them both. Let me reread verse 38 now. 
Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Two blessings. Now, I wonder if you're someone who would love to believe Israel's story that that there's a God who made the world in love and who, in the face of our best efforts to unravel his work, stubbornly persists in blessing. Maybe you're someone who sees that education and that law, these good things in themselves, have no power to heal the deep and painful divisions in our world and in our country. And maybe you're even somebody who identifies as a Christian. You can look back, you can tick the box. Yep, the resurrection happened. But have you stretched out your hand to receive the imperishable blessing of forgiveness from the only undecaying king? If you haven't, then even if you call yourself a Christian, even if you attend worship as often as the doors are open, then you're not what the Bible calls a Christian. What transforms a person is not a new degree. It's not letters after your name. And it's not new and better laws. What transforms a person is when the only undecaying king takes the hand that he made to fit into his and looks into the eyes that he made to resemble his and he says, your sins are forgiven. And when he says it, he really means it. Remember that God's word is a creative word. God speaks and things just happen. When God says in the beginning, let there be light, there's light. And this chaotic darkness really does become still. And it warms under the new glow of the sun. And in the same way, when King Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, he really means it. And your heart becomes, it really does, a new creation. And all that, that hidden guilt, it's cleansed. It's really cleansed. And that secret shame, it's, it is born away, and it's really born away. Now, forgiveness is the first blessing, but it's only half of what's on offer. Because in addition to forgiveness, verse 38 tells us that we can also be freed. Now, the word in the original language, and the only reason that I'm sharing this is because it's a, an important point to draw out for you. The word in the original language is dikaio. They translate it, translate it freed, but elsewhere in the New Testament, it's rendered justified. Not only are you freed from guilt and shame, you are justified. You are declared righteous before God. That's precisely what Isaiah promised would happen when the servant king finally came. Many will be accounted righteous. Now, the truly good news about God's new creational kingdom is that God is not only going to wipe the slate of your sins clean. He's not only going to blot out your guilt and take away your shame. He's going to entitle you to the very blessings that the first image bearers lost by their disobedience. And we live in an entitlement culture already, don't we? Like, there's... I had this oral surgery done. Well, maybe I looked on Google before I went to have that done. And I saw that, oh no, the doctor should be able to deal with this. (laughs) I'm entitled to a smooth course here. 
No, I still had to have the procedure done. We're not entitled to this blessing, but the Bible says God really does give us a right to these blessings, these blessings that we've lost. And that's why the cross and resurrection are so necessary, you see. We're not entitled. Without the cross, our record of sin would have remained ours, never to become Christ's. And without the resurrection, Christ's perfect record of righteousness would have remained his, never to become ours. And the good news is that as forgiven sinners, you're more than just forgiven. Marcus Lone, a great Australian churchman, put it this way. The voice that spells forgiveness will say, you may go. You have been let off the penalty which your sin deserves. But the verdict, which means justification, will say, you may come. You are welcome to all my love and my presence. Friends, the gospel is that God has not forgiven you to let you off, but to let you in, into his new creation, into his kingdom, even into his family as his daughters and sons to bear his image in a way that even the first image bearers couldn't have dreamed of. These imperishable blessings are for you if, verse 38, you will believe. May what the prophets foretold of those who crucified Jesus never be true of us. That though God is doing a work in our days, we won't believe it, even if someone stands there and tells us. Jesus is the only king who can usher in God's new creation. And refusing him is verse 41 makes very clear, brings even God's beloved image bearers under just judgment. There's a choice here. Will you choose life or death? Freedom or slavery? Forgiveness or wrath? And it's my deep longing that in each of those choices, you'll choose the former. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.